uh, that we may see and delight ourselves in your goodness this morning. Amen. What's the scariest ride you've ever been on? Scariest ride. Now, may, maybe uh, something like a, a corkscrew roller coaster or a bungee jump. I went on a ride that was considered so scary by Disney that they uh, cancelled it in 2003. <laughs> uh, and the ride was Alien Encounter. Putting the terror back into extraterrestrial. Uh, that, I think it was literally one of their, their taglines. So, here we are, you can see it here. The, the idea behind the ride is you're meant to be encountering this friendly alien who's going to be teleported into the main auditorium. But of course, things go horribly wrong. So it wouldn't be a fun ride if they didn't. So you, you come in and you sit in this big auditorium here and these safety restraints come down. I say safety. It's just to stop you getting out and running around screaming. These safety restraints come down over your shoulders and you're waiting for this friendly alien to be teleported into the teleportation sheet. Now, things go wrong and instead they end up teleporting this huge carnivorous alien appears in this teleportation tube and then there's a power failure the lights go out you hear a smash and as you're with me aren't you Rob as as the emergency lighting flickers on you see that the tube is broken and most of the show now continues in the dark and this alien is moving around looking for someone to devour and you've got your safety restraint on, so you can't move and you can't escape. And built into this safety restraint are a series of speakers. And so you can hear these noises and these footsteps and these screams that are coming. And hot air breathes down the back of your neck as the alien is behind you. And you feel his claws press down on your shoulder. And then a tongue comes out and licks you at the back of your head. And people are screaming. I mean, yeah, you, you can hear some stuff through the speakers, but that's also like, overcome by the noise of people genuinely there screaming. They are losing their minds. And eventually the ride ends. Aliens blown up or something. And the lights come up and people are in tears. <laughs> they were screaming. They were losing their minds. It was an intense experience. And I didn't really kind of know what was happening because it was in the dark. I didn't know what was going to happen. But there was one thing I was certain of. I was not going to be consumed by a carnivorous alien. I knew that. And because I knew that, I could sit there and there was a sort of calm confidence that I could have in the midst of that chaos where people around me are losing their minds, all this screaming. I knew one thing. I was not about to be consumed by a carnivorous alien, so I can have a calm confidence amidst the chaos. And maybe you know that experience when you've been on a scary ride. Now you feel like you're about to die, but you just go, hang on, no, this is, this is a ride. I'm, I'm okay. I feel like I'm about to die, but I'm not. And you have that experience of that calm confidence in the midst of chaos. Now, wouldn't it be great if we could have that in real life? 
in the chaos, in the challenges of real life. To have that calm confidence. And the good news is we can. We can experience that same calm confidence amidst the chaos of of real life. And it's all because of Jesus. And we're going to dig a, a bit deeper into that this morning. So three things that we're going to look through. The hope of Christ, the help of Christ, and the heart of Christ. So do have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 8. I'm going to begin by considering the hope of Christ. And uh, Luke's Gospel, we've been looking at Luke's Gospel in Thurfield Chapel. Part of the reason why we're looking at it uh, this morning. I was like, yeah, I'm spending time in this. So Luke's Gospel, Luke is, the Gospel is written, we're told at the beginning, really to demonstrate how Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's plans and of all God's promises. And a theme we see going through it is, from the very beginning, God's purpose has always been that the blessing of his presence, it extends over the whole earth. And at this point uh, in Luke's gospel, we're, we're in this region, the region of the Gerasenes. We don't know exactly where it is. There are several locations that it could be, but we're somewhere in uh, this marked off region here, and the disciples are on the sea or the Lake of Galilee. And at this point in Luke's gospel, we're working towards a question that Jesus is going to ask his disciples in chapter 9. He says to them, who, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? This is a question we're sort of working towards. And we've got these various events that are, are put together uh, to help us to answer that question. Who is Jesus? And so we read of Jesus calming the storm and driving out demons, of Jesus restoring a woman, of raising a girl to life, of Jesus feeding 5,000 with a single pack lunch. And these are all signposts. These different accounts act as signposts and signs of who Jesus is. And the disciples come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Messiah or the Christ. You know, Christ isn't Jesus' surname. It's not like Paul Dutton, Jesus Christ. Christ is his title. It means Messiah, the one who is anointed. The anointed one, the promised king, the longed for, the hoped for king. And Jesus is that king is one of the things we see in Luke's gospel, but he's not just any king. Now, he is the king, the ultimate king, the king of the universe. And another thing that we see uh, in Luke's gospel, that same God who overshadows uh, that tent of meeting that the Israelites gathered around in the wilderness where God would dwell with his people. The same God who overshadowed that tent of meeting overshadows the womb of Mary to be present with us. To meet with us in flesh and blood. That Jesus Christ isn't just a king. He is the king. God himself. God who's come to dwell with us as one of us. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. But sometimes our reading of this passage can just end there. So we come to this question the disciples ask in verse 25. Who is this? And we go, well... Jesus, he's the Messiah. He, he, he is God. I'm like, uh, disciples miss that, but come on, it's, it's quite clear, it's quite obvious to us. And we can end our reading there and think we've mastered the passage and, the, and then move on, but we need to be mastered by this passage. 
It is true, it is right that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God. But if that's all that we take from this, uh, then our minds are informed, but our hearts are starved. Because knowing that Jesus is the king, that he is God, that is right, that is true, that is important for us to know. But if we just leave it there, it's not enough. As this passage actually shows us. If we go to the people in the region of the Gerasenes. Now they don't, they don't fully understand who Jesus is. They don't fully grasp his identity. But they certainly recognize he is someone with great power and with great authority. And how do they respond when they recognize that Jesus is no ordinary man? Have a look down at verse 37. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got in the boat and he left. They were overcome with fear and they said, just just go away. Which maybe seems a bit crazy to us, but let's just place ourselves in their shoes for a moment. Now these are people who have Seeing they've experienced the destructive power of these demons known as legion. It's all right, no one's there, yeah? No one's squished. So the people in the regions of the Gerasenes, all, what they've known, what they've seen, this destructive power of these demons known as legion. They've seen what it's done in this man's life. Now this guy who's been driven out of his homes, like living naked, in the tombs, when they've tried to bind him with chains, he's broken them. And then when these demons enter into these pigs, they rush into the lake, this massive herd, and they drown. They've seen the power and the destructive forces of this demon known as Legion. And now, all of a sudden, they encounter this man who is even more powerful than that demon. Can you see why they're afraid? In the film, Jurassic Park, Daniel's missing this, you'll have to find him later. But towards the end of the film, the last remaining survivors are gathered in the main entrance hall of the, I was going to say museum, it's not museum, uh, of the theme park. And they're being hunted by a pack of raptors. And this velociraptor is there ready to pounce on these last remaining survivors when all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, this T-Rex swoops in, grabs a raptor in his mouth and starts eating it. Now, what do the survivors do? I'll tell you what they don't do. They don't run over to the T-Rex and start hugging him and saying, thank you for saving us. They run and they hide. And then they flee for their lives. Because if they were fearful of the raptors, then how much more so this T-Rex? And so, yes, Jesus is more powerful than Legion, but... Given what Legion was like, that in and of itself is not necessarily a comforting thought. These people ask Jesus to leave. And so if we just simply know that Jesus is God, that he is one who is infinite in power, that is not enough. Because we're just tempted to, to flee or to send Jesus away. Now we need to know, we need to see that God is not just infinitely more powerful than these forces of chaos and destruction that we experience in life, but that he is infinitely different. 
And so to know that Jesus is God, it is good, it is right. But that in itself is not enough. We need to look at Jesus. And as we look at Jesus, who is God, then we also see what God is like. We see the heart of God revealed. And then as we experience those chaotic forces in life, now we see that God is not just some greater force that we need to flee from, but that he is a gracious and a loving father that we are to run to. Jesus Christ is our reason for hope. And because of him, it means that we can have a calm confidence amidst the chaos of life. And we're going to dig into that now a bit deeper still as we consider the help of Christ. Verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into the boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, master, we're going to drown. He got up, rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. So the disciples, they're out on this lake, also known as the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee, it's below sea level. It's surrounded by these mountains. And that means that cool and cold air can suddenly come rushing through the valleys. It crashes into the warm air over the lake. And almost in an instant, storms can just get whipped up out of nowhere. So suddenly this calm lake develops seven-foot waves. And life can feel a bit like that, can't it, at times? Everything seems calm. Everything seems to be going along fine. And then suddenly, in an instant, that one thing, everything seems to fall apart. You know, that redundancy letter. Or that medical appointment with the doctor. Or that that one phone call, that one meeting, that one disclosure, that one conversation, and and suddenly everything that seemed to be going along fine and smooth is, is thrown into utter chaos. And you feel like you're drowning in that moment. And the disciples literally experienced that. And yet what can make the whole thing feel even harder and why are the disciples even in this position in the first place? Have a look at verse 22. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. The, the only reason they're on the lake is because Jesus has said, let's go over. They're just following Jesus. They're just doing what Jesus has told them to do. And sometimes we feel like we're drowning. And it's made all the more harder because we were just seeking to follow Jesus. The whole reason we're in that situation and that experience is because of our obedience to Christ. And it's hard. Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So the disciples go. And then Jesus falls asleep. And the storm rages. And in those moments, it feels like we're alone in the storm. Like God's 
forgotten us or he's abandoned us, having led us into this place of destruction. And so the disciples, they wake Jesus and they say, Master, Master, we're going to drown. We are perishing. Now, we don't know the tone of the disciples' voice. Maybe there was a sense of blame in it. Master, we're here because you told us to be here. Maybe it's just blind panic. But the one thing that we are told uh, is that there wasn't faith in their response. And we'll come on to that in a moment. But notice the kindness of Christ. He calms a storm and then, verse 25, he asks them, where is your faith? Jesus doesn't go, I'm not sorting this out until you sort yourselves out. You know, muster up some faith and then maybe we'll deal with the storm. Jesus calms the storm. And then he asks them this question. See, our hope is not based in our measure of faith. Our hope is based in Christ. And our help comes not from our level of faith. Our help comes from Christ. And as we see him for who he is, as we know him more, then then yes, our faith and our trust deepens. But it's Jesus who calms the storm. It's not the level of the disciples' faith that calms the storm. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our help. And actually, it is better to be in the storm with Jesus than it is to be outside a storm without Jesus. It is better for us to be in the storm with Jesus than to be outside a storm without Jesus because Jesus is our help. And so Jesus calms the storm. And then he asks the disciples this question, where is your faith? They'd missed something crucial. Jesus says to them, where is your faith? Basically, he's asking them, how is it that you don't trust me? Don't, don't you know me? They missed something. Around 18 months ago, I was still here, and at that point I was applying for the role of pastor at Thurfield Chapel, and it was a bit of a chaotic time. It wasn't a big storm, but there were just lots of job applications that I was having to work through, and it was a run-up to Christmas, and so things were busy, and then there were sermons having to prep, and, and sometimes when you're prepping a sermon, you get to the start of the week, and you're like, I have no idea. Am I even going to have anything by the end of the week? And you can kind of build up that pressure and there's all these sort of deadlines. And so it's a bit of a mini storm in my life. And one particular week, it was on a Friday and it felt like everything had come together. I had a sermon, job application, things were sort of done. And I was driving in the car and I was listening to the song, He Will Hold Me Fast. I'm just contemplating on the many and the varied ways in which God has, has met me uh, and all these things that I was worried about and concerned about and how he's carried me through them, whether it's kind of the small storms in life, a bit like some of those weeks, or whether some of the bigger challenges. And as I was listening to the song and starting to reflect on that and just quietly give thanks to God, and there was this sense of, just amazement at all the different ways that God had met me as I considered it. And in that moment, God spoke to my heart. And just asked me, why are you surprised 
Why all this, Paul? Why does this surprise you? Why, why does it surprise you that I want to do so much good to you? Why does it surprise you that I met you there and I met you there and I met you there? Don't you know me? Where's your faith? Don't you know who I am and that I want to do so much good to you? And in that moment, just overwhelmed with a sense of of God's goodness, I just broke down and wept. Jesus said to his disciples, where is your faith? Don't, Don't you know me? You're crying out to me. We are perishing, but I am here with you. And if I'm with you, and if you are with me, one thing is certain, you are not perishing. I have not brought you on this voyage to destroy you. Don't you know me? Don't you know my heart? See, if we are following Christ, if we are his disciples, we have a reason for hope that Christ is our help. And what a help he is. And again, let's just press into that a bit deeper as we we see more of this heart of Christ. As Jesus said to his disciples, if only you could see, if only you knew my heart, you would see, you would realize you are not perishing. And we see something of the heart of Christ and what occurs next. And there's, there's one particular detail I want to draw your attention to. So in verse 26, as they sail on, they sailed on to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. But Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven from the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Now notice verse 32. A large herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. That is odd, isn't it? Isn't that a strange verse? It's good for us to ask some of these questions. So why is our attention being drawn to this? I mean, here is is Jesus. He's standing before this demonized man, this man whose life has been made a misery by these forces of darkness and oppression. And Jesus is in full control of this situation. Now, his hand is not forced. The demon is cowering before Jesus, repeatedly begging him, do not send us into the abyss. Do not send us into the deep darkness. There is no power imbalance here. Jesus is in full control. And if ever there was a time to delight in destruction, you would think, now is it. Imagine if we were there and we overheard this conversation. I think we'd probably be egging Jesus on. Just send them into the abyss. You've seen what it's done in this man's life. 
these dark demonic forces. Just send them away. Give them what they deserve. And yet that's not what Jesus does, is it? These demons repeatedly beg Jesus to send them into the pigs and Jesus gives them permission. Now there's many questions that this passage provokes, like why did demons want to go into pigs specifically and and what happened to the demons once the pigs were drowned in the lake? There are many, many questions. One that I think really matters to us and that is what does this reveal to us about God, the heart of God. And as we look at Jesus in this moment, as we see God revealed, Jesus is God. As we see the heart of God revealed, we see that God is not one who delights in destruction. God does not delight in destruction. Because, you know, when you delight in something and you are presented with the opportunity to indulge in the thing you delight in. You take it, don't you? I was going to say, we all know. Many of us know here, Rich delights in sermon illustrations about bread, (laughs) and he delights in drinking good coffee. Is that a fair assessment, Rich? So given the opportunity, if there is a sermon where I could get in a sermon illustration about bread here, he'll take it. If there is an opportunity to drink good coffee, he will take it. If you delight in something and you are presented with the opportunity to to indulge in the thing that you delight in, you take it. Now, the demons, they delight in destruction. And we see it, given half a chance to destroy, that's what they'll do. They spent all this time destroying this man's life, driving him into the tombs. Even when he was chained, when people tried to protect him from that, they, they would break the chains and drive him into the tombs. The second they enter into the pigs, what do they do? They drive them down to their death. The demons delight in destruction. But when Jesus is presented with the opportunity to destroy, he doesn't. And the demons are fully aware that Jesus has the opportunity, should he wish. They repeatedly beg him, don't send us into the abyss. Jesus could send them into the abyss, into deep darkness, if he wanted to, if he chose to. If it was his delight, well, he would indulge in that delight. But he doesn't send them there. If you delight in something, when you have the opportunity to indulge in that, you take it. And we see in here, this heart of God revealed, God is not one who delights in destruction, and to show this isn't just reading too much into this text, which there's always a danger that we could do that. Let's just look at scripture elsewhere. So Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Say to them, the Lord says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? God says, I take no pleasure, even in the death of the wicked. This is not a God who delights in destruction. And then Revelation, chapter 11, verse 18. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. 
So to be sure, God will bring about a destruction one day. But it's not because he delights in destruction. He will bring a destruction on those who destroy the earth. You see, the fact that God destroys the destroyer reveals to us that God doesn't delight in destruction. Does that make sense? If God delighted in destruction, he would commend the destroyer. He wouldn't destroy it. God is not a God who delights in destruction. And because he does not delight in destruction, he has appointed a day where he will destroy all that destroys. And that applies to both human and to demonic forces. God is not one who delights in destruction. When Jesus has the opportunity here to destroy, he doesn't. Not only is Jesus infinitely more powerful than legion, he is infinitely different. And the people of the region, they beg Jesus to leave because they they don't see that. They see his greater in power, but they, they don't see the goodness. They haven't seen the heart of God revealed in Christ. And I think this is why when the man begs to go with Jesus... Jesus says, no, not coming with me. Instead, he sends him away and says, verse 39, return home and tell how much God has done for you. How much God has done for you. These people need to know what it is that God has done for you. He's not against you. What God has done for you. These people... The region of the garrisons, they needed to see. We need to see the heart of God as revealed in Christ. Do you see that? God is one who does not delight in destruction, but he is committed to doing so much good. And as we see him for who he is, as we, as we know him more, It means that those storms that you are experiencing in life, maybe even now, even today, they are not the work of a cruel, capricious God who delights in causing you pain. Rather, it means that God is in that situation. There may be many questions that we have about it, but we can know that God is in that situation. And somehow, in some way, he is working good. Because that is who he is. And so as we look at Jesus, as we deepen in knowing him, it means our perspective in the storm, in the chaos of life can change. Maybe sometimes the storm and the chaos may not change in that moment. The disciples in the storm, they're crying out to Jesus, we're perishing. But when we consider who Jesus is, when we see the heart of God is revealed in Christ, actually that's the one thing that could not be happening to Jesus' disciples. They were not perishing. Because God is not a God who delights in destruction. Rather one who's committed to doing so much good. And so knowing that Christ is our help, when we see the heart of of God revealed in Christ. Now we have this hope in Christ. Even as we feel battered by the storms of life. And one day there will be calm. 
Jesus is the king. He has all power. He has all authority. One day there will be calm. Now we may not necessarily see that in our life now. There are some tears that will not be wiped away until Jesus returns. And yet on that day we are told every tear will be wiped away. There will be calm. Jesus will ultimately bring an end to the storm. And yet even now, we can have confidence. A calm confidence in the midst of the chaos. And there's a situation that may be dark and difficult. And there's much that you don't know, maybe much that you don't understand. And yet Jesus calls us to know him. To know him in the midst of it. We are to know Christ and yes, to know his power and his might, but, but know his heart and find rest and find delight in him. Because he is not the God who delights in destruction. Because if you are in Christ and he is in you, whatever is happening, one thing is certain and you are not perishing. Let's pray.